Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Uh, glad to have you at Hillcrest this morning. My name is Christian Limbeck. If I haven't uh, met you yet, we just want to say uh, happy Grads and Dads Day again. It really is a big deal to us. I know that uh, yesterday was Western's uh, graduation ceremony, but others around here who've been in school, to all of you who finished your university studies, congratulations. We're very proud of you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for those of you who are leaving, one of the heartbreaks of being a church a mile from the gate of a major university and surrounded by other schools is that we have to say goodbye to people a lot. Uh, every four years, or every year, there's a new group of people who are headed out. And so if Hillcrest has been your home over these four years, or even just for a little bit, we want to say thank you. We were delighted for the opportunity we send you out uh, with a blessing. And just know that you've always got a home here. So wherever God takes you, if you come back, you will be warmly greeted here. And dads, uh, again, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, we celebrate Father's Day here just like we celebrate Mother's Day in that both mothers and fathers show us something about who God is. It is the capacity and characteristics, the personality of both that reveal the fullness of the God that we worship. And so for all you fathers out there uh, of all sorts who are embodying those capacities that Camille prayed, we thank you for the ways that you lean in. I think Camille said the way you step out and step ahead, step forward and do fathering here. So uh, we are grateful. So thanks, grads and dads. Again, um, we are finally, and finally is kind of a strong word, but we're finally winding down this Creed series. It feels like a finally to me because if you've been around here, it's only been eight weeks of Creed, but we did it in two sections with Missions Month right in between. Uh, and so it feels like we've been in Creed for a while and we're kind of finally winding down uh, those eight weeks. And over eight weeks, just one more to go uh, next week, we've been unpacking uh, the goodness that is just densely packed into each word of the creed. We've tried to say the whole time that its brevity uh, doesn't show a lack of sophistication, it shows a work of precision. Uh, that a good summary of anything took a massive information and scrunched it down. So think of each one of these words as just being like jam-packed, pregnant uh, with all kinds of information, a lifetime of study in each one of these phrases. And that's why we've encouraged our children, our young people, our high schoolers uh, and adults to memorize these words. They are the few words that has unified the Christian church over 2,000 years. With very little change, we've all been able to repeat uh, these words. And in the breakdown of the creed, we're getting, and see that, that kind of little bottom paragraph, we're now getting into what you might call uh, the results and promises of the creed. The front half of the creed has been giving us the kind of who's, the how's, and the what's of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gets one line there. He should have paragraphs of his own, but again, a work of precision. Uh, Jesus has the bulk of it because he is the messenger who brought us the good news, but as we get down to the bottom, it because what we've said is true about the Father and because what we said is true about the Son and because there is the Holy Spirit, we can start saying some of the resultant promises, uh, the privileges, the results out of those truths. So last week we got to say 
we believe in the holy Christian church. I think Dan personally called it the beautiful mess of which we are a part of. That is a result uh, because it is true about the Father, because it is true about the Son, because there is the Holy Spirit, we get this assembly, this body of people, a result, a promise. Um, and then come these next four words in the creed. So after I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the next four we, words in the creed. And if you, if you don't have one yet, there's probably one in a seat pocket in front of you so you can follow along, especially if you're new here this morning, kind of see where we're at, that last little block. Uh, we've got the Holy Christian Church and the Communion of Saints was last week. And then we get to those next four words, the forgiveness of sins. And by an implied literary structure, you know, if we had to say it on its own, the statement would be, I believe, or we believe, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Um, Do you remember two weeks ago when Tim talked about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, he played with the six word memoir movement. Uh, You know, there's people writing, can you write your memoir in six words? And he suggested that I believe in the Holy Spirit would be a a darn good six-word memoir. And you see some people, if you don't kind of follow us on Facebook or connected to other people, folks went on there and started writing some really great six-word memoirs. I love it when that sort of thing happens. But uh, it's because, like I said, those words are densely packed. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Each, that phrase itself is full of so much of the confession of the Christian faith properly understood, it becomes a bit of a thrill on the tongue, you know. I believe in that. What what does that mean for us practically now? What does it mean uh, historically as a six-word memoir? Well, I think that today, if if last week's is a a really good six-word memoir, then there's a real sense in which today's seven words are kind of a fearsome and wonderful exclamation point on a six-word memoir. One, one more word, uh, but one more word grander and even more unimaginable in the way these things are sewn together. But it is arguable to say that those seven words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, are the objective and central message of the entire creed. Uh, in all of this, I, it's hard for me to say they're all equally important, but there's something sort of more important in the equally important. Does that, does that make sense to you? Uh, and to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, there's a real sense in which the whole creed is sort of leading up to that statement and then flows out of that statement as well. To say, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, that tells us everything about the Father. What is his motive in creating? What was the creation? What did it look like? What was the problem of creation? What was the solution of creation? Why did he create? Some of that, much of it's addressed in, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. It tells us much about the Son, Jesus Christ. His motives, his plan, our future, um, his way, the hope that is to be shared. I think about all the things that are tied up in the seven words, I believe in the forgiveness of of sins. I mean, even the work of the Holy Spirit is essentially connected to those seven words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, for what has the Holy Spirit come to do? But to seal the absolute truth of those words onto your soul. The Holy Spirit is called the seal or the erebon, the promised deposit upon your soul 
of the truth of those words, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit comes to apply and develop the truth of the forgiveness of sins, I like to say, from the basement to the rooftop of our lives. Right? I believe in the forgiveness of sins deals with the stuff in the back corner of the basement of your life and rises up to the rooftop. I believe in the forgiveness of sins is the work of the Holy Spirit is to make you a professor, confessor, and carrier of that good news. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It becomes our primary message that we send out. I believe, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus basically sent us out and said, here's the message that you take. I've come so that there might be the forgiveness of sins, right? Go out, carry this message. Here's the good news that forgiveness of sins, an irretrievable, irrevocable forgiveness of sins exists for anybody who will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Claim him as Lord without any price to pay, you know, other than laying down your life, but no religious obligation to be met. Freedom and grace given freely for a life aligned with God that we might be with him, that we might reflect him, that we might assemble, be a body that reflects him. I believe, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I was, I was thinking, uh, at first, I'll see if you're with me, those words can sound almost benign. Uh, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's like a spoken blessing, maybe even a well-wishing, right? It seems like a socially acceptable thing to say. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Oh, very nice. I believe in the forgiveness of sins as well. So you guys are awake, right? That's what that feels like to me. It feels like something you might say just being nice to somebody else. And maybe even kind of a wholly uncontroversial thing to say about God. Uh, God believes in the forgiveness of sins. And I was, and as I was thinking, I was thinking of even just a little more reflection provides us an easy opportunity to recognize how strikingly controversial those words are. To say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, or we believe in the forgiveness of sins, those are controversial. They're actually socially unacceptable things to say because they're predicated on a couple of ideas. Let's name some. There's such a thing as objective sin. That, how about that one? Uh, you know, sin between people, most folks are okay with that. But there being objective sin, things that are fundamentally and absolutely wrong, bad for us, bad for others, bad for the creation, and an affront to God. Sin as an objective reality is a controversial. I mean, like every debate that we might be getting in on social issues might eff effectively dwindle down to the issue of is or is that, can you call it a sin objectively? So to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins first establishes that there are sin, and then it establishes that you and I need to be forgiven for them. Hello? Not by, just by each other, but by God. Like that there is an inherent guilt, shame, sense of the divine, a brokenness between us and God that must be forgiven. Again, I think that extending forgiveness to each other is nearly universally admired. But the idea is that we have objective sin and need to be forgiven by God is less socially acceptable. But it is the only one that's real about what abides in us. 
You know, one of the things that saying all things are acceptable or what's right and wrong is a social construct hasn't be able, been able to solve, shame, guilt. <laughs> uh, no matter how much you tell people whatever you want to do is okay, they cannot evacuate a sense of guilt and shame from it. All the self-talk in the world does not change how we are fundamentally designed. That we know there's something out there. There is a creator. We know that we have sin. and We cannot process. God has to really deal with the actual issue that is in us. The central biblical truth that everyone sins against neighbor, creation, self, and God. Um, Psalm 51, if you guys know King David, uh, I would call him the signal king of the Old Testament. By that I just mean he revealed so much about the Messiah to come. He was selected by God to be one who showed us something about Jesus who was coming. And uh, when David got busted, and he got publicly busted for an affair, and then following that up with a cowardly murder, um, he wrote a prayer to God, Psalm 51. Now consider this, he wrote a public song to be sung in church. How's that for confession, right? Which one of you wants to write that song next? We're ready to sing it. Scott? No? Nobody? Uh, He writes this public confession of his sin to be sung in church. In Psalm 51, he says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I just, I could just land on this scripture forever. For I know my transgression. I know my sin. It's in me. I can pretend all I want, put on all the shiny faces. I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. I am aware of it. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are so right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely it seems to me I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now we know that David sinned against himself. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his family. He sinned against his nation. He sinned against these people. But he says, against you, Lord, primarily and only you. I can work out the infraction between people, but I cannot work out the infraction between me and you. You are an all-holy God who loves me and chose me and put me in this position. I sense, I know, I am aware of the brokenness between me and you. And so while sin can be an interpersonal or even environmental issue, the core of the sin that needs to be dealt with is personal and God-oriented. It is, the, it is the stuff that we don't talk about to each other. It's the, like, I mean, only a few. There are real, like, inside of us is a profound awareness, even those who don't know God. Especially if you don't know God and you're here, that's a hint, unless somebody drug you here this morning, which is potential. There's something in us that is aware of the profound brokenness and a primary profound brokenness between us and the creator, the one who made us. This is why so-called private sins do not avoid shame and guilt. If, why, why does God care what I dwell on or fantasize about or look at why I am on my own? Because the primary infraction is between you and him. 
You, you injure yourself and you are injurious to your alignment with God. Even what we just think about damages us and that relationship. Sometimes people are like, well, there are victimless sins. I've actually heard people list pornography there, which is probably one of the most ridiculous things I've heard. Uh, because there's profound victim there. But at its heart still, it breaks you. There is no sin that does not break you. And there is no sin that does not break our relationship with God. We, we are made fundamentally for one thing. To enjoy God and be enjoyed by Him. Which means our life is primarily an intimacy with God thing. Hello? This is what we're built for. It's like not primarily our job or our successful family. Those, those are nice byproducts, but we are built primarily to walk aligned with God, intimate with Him, to enjoy Him and to be enjoy, pardon me, to be enjoyed by Him. So our sin certainly hurts those that are around us, but it hurts us, and it is a wild, unholy rejection of God. Um, again, the Christian church is built on this idea that we believe humans were built for the freedom of being aligned. I want to say that carefully. Not the freedom of being wildly free. The freedom of being aligned under God. And yet, even though we're given the gift of freedom of being aligned with God, we always, there's a sort of an anthropological rule, but certainly a biblical one, we always inherently choose ourselves, even though we're built for good alignment, there's something in us that chooses the life of shame and guilt. And I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but the Apostle Paul, an early leader and follower of Jesus, uh, does such a great job at the beginning of the book of Romans unpacking. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 20. He pulls no punches here about how humans respond to this innate gift of giving that they could be aligned and then the choices that they make. Beginning verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from everything that has been made, so that all people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they, can you just put we in there? <laughs> Would that be helpful? Although we claim to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to make look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We created idols for ourselves, many of which exist money, power, sex. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desire of their heart, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And if I might paraphrase, lost the good gift given to them. Picking up verse 28, it says, Furthermore, just they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to their depraved mind, which was their choice. So that they do what ought not to be done. And listen to his list. Just in case people are thinking, hey... It's a social construct. Do what you want. We become better when we are free. Here's what we become biblically. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, 
God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Sin, like a real sin issue, given the opportunity to choose alignment with God ourselves, we choose this. And so that our individual and corporate problem isn't just that we harm each other in sin, but our individual and ongoing corporate problem, the thing for which we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is primarily a transgression against God himself. Made for something good, we choose that list. And you know, we could pretend, you could think that's your neighbor, but if you were silent and honest, this is us. This is, this is what honest non-Christians can say to their counselor. In me is something fundamentally broken. This is our list, a transgression. And Anselm of Canterbury, he's one of my favorite, I like to borrow his Latin quotes all the time, but he wrote a book uh, called Cur Deus Homo, why did God have to become a human being? Is the question asked in the title of the book. And in the book, he's having this conversation with a guy named Bozo. Perfect, right? Bozo's asking these questions back and forth. And uh, he, Bozo you know, asks about it. He says, and Anselm answers this question, why did God have to become man? He says, because if we're to be saved from the consequences of sin, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, had to become incarnate, take on flesh, to take our place. And then Bozo asks him, why such an extravagant act? Like, couldn't God just forgive, couldn't he just forgive sin? Why did he have to do something as extravagant as taking on human flesh and dying on the cross? And Anselm answered him, and I'll probably slay the Greek, but I love it, nondum considerasti quanti pandera sit peccatum. Have you really yet thought about how heavy the weight of sin is? Because the infraction is heavy. The need is great. The problem is real. It is not a light and inconsequential and side thing between me and you. It is a real thing between you and God. Let me put it to you this way. <laughs> uh, the joy of forgiveness cannot be properly understood until the real grief of sin is grappled with. Otherwise, the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, becomes a feckless and almost unnecessary thing. It goes back to just being a nice thing to say about God. God believes in the forgiveness of sins. So if God is almighty and all-powerful and all-loving, isn't it just easy for him to forgive? Can't he just, isn't that something easy for him to let go? That makes little of the sin that is the problem. It's precisely because he is all-knowing and all-loving and all-involved and integrated and experiencing our sin, literally a part of it, is precisely because he is love. It is precisely because he made us why he must really actually deal with the problem. This is why like, some people can't get forgiveness because they've made it a little thing, so they get a little bit of forgiveness. When they have not dealt with the real issue, God's awareness of it, and the weight of forgiveness that comes, that there is a real problem and real 
forgiveness actually deal with sin? Uh, I don't know about you. I remember part of my own journey uh, coming to Christ. And uh, I think that I got saved as, as a, a really maybe four or five years old saved. I mean, I knew who he was, but I had no walk with him. And I was a young airman serving in Saudi Arabia, and I was home on break, and God dramatically re-entered my life. And that season followed for me with this voracious appetite, like I could not get enough information about God. Uh, And that was a really wonderful season of my life, but I think it was followed by a more important one. And the next season for me was God inserting himself into my life and making me deal with who I am and what he has really forgiven. And that happened in a moment and stretched over 15 years at least. I don't know how that went for you, but I had a very intellectual confession and then God just poured out on me. It was a day where it just literally felt like a waterfall of my own sin. Like he let me feel to the extent I can the weight of the things that I have done to grapple with it, to ache with it, to face it. And then and only then did he intermingle in for me. It still feels like kind of like a a thread of white light amongst the dark. Only then did he intermingle in the joy of my forgiveness. And they had to live together. Uh, They weren't separated. Like I didn't get to sit down and woo, I'm so glad that I don't have to think about the sin part anymore. It was the wedding of the two that has created truth. It is the moment where I realized I needed and have an ongoing pressing need for forgiveness. That I have only compounded my sin. I don't know about you, but the good news is supposed to go something like this. I recognize that what I deserve is public shame, condemnation, and death. Ongoing. And that what I have received is grace and the gift of today. It's the, it is the weight of those two things together that provide truth. It is only when you actually deal with the there are kids in the room stuff, the garbage that is in your heart actually, where there is any real weight of saying, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Uh, can I say it again? Oh, it's just a nicety. It's almost sort of a profoundly profane nicety. You, you must actually deal with sin in you and in each other and in the world and its objective reality of sin. To be able to say, I know I'm guilty and I can't carry it, so I gave it to another and he carried it to the cross. I can't, he can. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. And now some of you might be asking me, well, so what? I don't know. Or if you're a skeptic, maybe you've raised, you know, kind of the, I don't believe in this stuff, and I certainly don't believe in feeling guilty. If only it were that simple. Don't you wish you could say, I don't believe in feeling guilty, and it would go away? I don't believe in feeling anxious. Nope, still didn't go away. Right? (laughs) You know why? It's a material reality. It's not a decision that you get to make for yourself. The reaction of being in infraction with our eternal God is a reality that must be dealt with. It's not about how we feel. It's about what is true. I'm going to say that one more time. These are fundamental physical truths The moment you say, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, you have established objective and grotesque sin as a reality. 
and you have established the hope and promise of Jesus and the absolute covering of his way, a complete answer to the problem. But first, it must be dealt with. Um, you'll see here, this is, by the way, if you're new, this is not some, it's totally random that we have a giant rock sitting right here. Uh, and thanks, Charlie and Guy, for helping me bring that in. We thought it was about four or 500 pounds. My dad did some math on it. It says about six or 700 pound rock, uh, which is weird that we brought it in here. <laughs> But what I like about the rock is it's an objective reality. That rock being there is a data point. Uh, when you're done here, come try to move it. It's 700 pounds. Best of luck. It, it has to be dealt with. By the way, if you decide to pretend the rock doesn't exist, guess what? Still does. <laughs> try away. Imagine it away right now. Why is that? Because it's not an idea. It's an objective truth. Something that actually exists. It's a point of data. That is precisely what sin and the good news of Jesus is. It is not an idea. It is not a religious concept. It is not a construct. It's a data point. It's something that's fundamentally true about humans and about reality and all human beings. That's what I, all I want to say. All human beings. I, believe it or not, ignore it or not, everybody has to deal with the rock. You, you, you do. But guess what? Pretending the rock doesn't exist, that's a decision. That's a decision to say no to the rock. Now, it's funny that Scripture uses this example of time. It says Jesus is the rock on which some people will stand. Right? The firm foundation. Some will confess Jesus and stand on the rock. Right? And wind and storm will come. Nothing will move the rock. The rock becomes for them a strong foundation. But they coped with the rock. That means they coped with their sin. They chose Jesus. They put their feet on the rock. Now the scripture says there's a contrary truth. If you will not put your feet on the rock, ironically by having your own life broken, and put your feet on the rock, then you will fall over the rock and the rock will crush you. But there's no in between. Either you put your feet on the rock or you fall over the rock and the rock crushes you. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not, and I would put on, will not believe, the stone that has been rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You must deal with the issue. By the way, Christians, that's for you too. I haven't seen fruit in my life. I don't have intimacy with God. I have no fulfillment in walking with him. My faith is a kind of a painful torture to me. I don't get to enjoy the world and I don't really get to enjoy my faith. I'm living somewhere in the middle. That is because you have not adequately dealt with sin and the answer. At least that's part of it. You gotta get down. I, I wish we could. Have, I had ten more minutes to talk about the power of confession to God and another, because you take away the foot. No, you say it to another human being and God, and all of a sudden there is. You can't have shame. You just get the rock. But if you won't deal with it, it becomes the rock that crushes instead of the rock upon which you stand. I wish I had tons of time this morning to unpack the how we respond to God how we deal with sin, what it means, what it looks like for us. 
For that, I want to recommend, especially if you're new to the Bible, that you go to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1 through 10. Uh, Paul unpacks this entire journey in the book of Romans. If you uh, are new and you're reading it and you think, I, I, I need a little guidance, Google something called the Roman Road. Uh, just Google it. And you're going to get a kind of a road map through the book of Romans. Uh, or take out your phone right now. I, I said it. And take a picture of this slide. I've built a little chiasm, and you can look it up later. It's kind of a mountaintop. And this is an argument out of the book of Romans. The problem to the solution to the fruit. And if you want, go ahead and take a picture. We'll post it online too. Uh, walk, take yourself through that journey from the problem to the solution to the fruit that flows out of it. And Romans builds, I built it as a chiasm. Think of a mountaintop experience. It unpacks a very simple idea. Everyone is guilty, but God has a made a, w- a way to all of us, even when we're not looking for him, even when we're actively rebelling. I'm going to read Romans 10, 9 through 10, the mountaintop real quick. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess, <laughs> I tripped on both of those, mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The results of which coming down that mountain are an absolute assurance of peace with God, a life without condemnation, why the Holy Spirit develops in you the presence and purposes of God, all within the inviolable safety of God's love in Jesus Christ. A beautiful and powerful summary of the gospel. Here's how we're going to end this. I can see Sikkim waiting out there for us. I'm going to invite uh, our worship band back up, and they're going to give us a small gift, and that small gift is a moment of silence. And in that moment of silence, I just want you to take an opportunity to think about where am I in dealing with the rock, with my sin and forgiveness? And for some of you, you have never dealt with it. And in that moment of silence, I give you the invitation to turn your life and your attention to Jesus Christ. Some of you know Jesus, but you need to deal with the problem. And some of you just need a little bit of a restart, a refresh, or you just need to come and see Jesus and talk to him a little bit about who and where you are. And as the band begins to play, they're going to start. Just take a moment. We'll be fine on time. Uh, If you need to take a moment to pray there in your seat, you're welcome. If you need to take a moment to come up here and pray, we'll be up here to pray with you as well. They're going to lead us through a song, and then we'll wrap it up and close the service. But I want to give you a chance for your heart and mind to respond to this truth. Phenomenal seven words. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.